What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arnie's. We are three guys that were eagerly waiting for Oppie to say, now I am become death, a destroyer of worlds, the entire movie. I'm Matt Johnson, and why are characters in movies and TV not respecting our queen, Emily Blunt? I'm Keith Baker, and I'm glad we got our beloved Bernard from the Santa Claus in this movie. And I'm Austin Terry, and Matt Damon looks damn good as a mustachioed army general in this movie. I expected to disagree with that, but I gotta say, he kind of pulled off the mustache pretty well. So, Matt Damon, if you're going to do that weird, like, Great Wall China thing, like a sequel, maybe instead of doing the man bun, think about a mustache. And maybe in every movie that you do from now on. Or maybe a man bun and a mustache. Holy shit, is that possible? Do people have enough hair to do that? (laughs) Or Ben Affleck's shitty goatee from Chasing Amy. Wow, that was bad. Wow, throwback. <laughs> you guys remember Chasing Amy? Uh, on today's show, who thought that Chasing Amy would come up in the Oppenheimer discussion? But of course, today, everybody, we are talking about Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's newest film. This one is about the titular Oppenheimer and the creation of the infamous atomic bomb that ended World War II. But guys, before we get to that, there's someone else that hasn't been on top of it. I suppose you could say lately, and that's our dearest friend, RDJ, a.k.a. Robert Downey Jr. So my question for you guys to open this up, is he on a better path now after working with Mr. Nolan and just doing this movie? Because we certainly saw what he was doing previously between his uh, ending of Iron Man and now I would just call that the Doolittle era. Yeah, I, th- I think our friend RDJ was desperately in need of a downy assance, and this really feels like it could be the start, because his upcoming projects on IMDb look pretty good. Uh, he's doing a Jamie Foxx-directed film, where he's playing a character called The Mexican Stranger. He's doing Sherlock Holmes 3. Uh, he has an untitled Sherlock Holmes project, so really getting back into the franchises. And then he's doing a serial killer movie called Average Height, Average Build. So... None of these appear to be the quality of Doolittle, so I feel good about the future for Mr. RDJ himself. Austin, I do tend to agree with you, but whenever like you're bringing up, we might be in for a downy assance, and the first thing you bring up is that Robert Downey Jr. is playing a character called the Mexican Stranger, I do get more worried than excited. <laughs> um, because RDJ, I mean, would we call him our favorite white man? <laughs> I don't know if I would call him my favorite Mexican. <laughs> well, I am excited for the surrounding cast. You got Jamie Foxx. You, go. okay. you got Gerard Butler. You got Benicio Del Toro. And you got Snoop Dogg. So wow. how could this movie go wrong? Wow. Okay. All right. We'll see what RDJ pulls off. Um, but guys, let's open it up to not just Christopher Nolan, not just Robert Downey Jr.'s role in this movie. Let's get into all of it. Austin and Keith, I want to know, what were your expectations going into this? Uh, kind of remind everybody your thoughts on Christopher Nolan in general, because since we started this podcast, we've only talked about him kind of in relation to Tenant, if I recall. Um, and yeah, then just give us your non-spoiler thoughts on Oppenheimer. Yeah, for me, when it comes to Nolan, I have yet to find a Nolan movie I don't like. There are certainly some that maybe are lesser quality than others, but overall, I've, I've still found every single movie of his enjoyable. Tenant would probably be at the bottom of that list, but there are still pieces of that movie I can point to and say... Only Christopher Nolan can do that. For me, he really can do no wrong. So the hype for this movie for me was very real. Um, I've been anticipating this movie ever since I found out about it. The more I kind of learned about it with there being like no CGI and they were actually doing a real bomb for the movie, all that I knew we were at least going to be in for a visual spectacle. Uh, And that's kind of what I was expecting for this movie. And going into it, not only was I surprised that 
yes, we got a visual spectacle, but also just the quality of the storytelling was top notch. Um, the only thing I can think of when I think about this movie is just stunning. Um, I saw it a few days ago on kind of like those secret Thursday showings, and it, it stuck with me since then. I can't stop thinking about it. The way Nolan does his stories with kind of the dueling plot lines and jumping through time and all of it, I just found very compelling and engaging. And it's, it's a three hour watch, but it flew by for me. Um, it kind of uh, toys with your senses, it toys with your emotions, um, and it kind of makes you scared at times, it makes you nervous, it makes you proud at times of some of the accomplishments, and then kind of throws it right back in your face with the new weapons that the world's building up to. So everything about this movie I thoroughly enjoyed and just uh, can't stop thinking about it, and I'm probably going to go see it a few more times while it's in theaters. Yeah, I thought it was incredible. I'm right there with you, Austin. Um, as far as my expectations... Overall, always enjoyed and loved all of Nolan's films. I think he's got a great directing style. Everything always looks visually pleasing in all of his movies. The soundtracks are always on point. So Nolan, I think, is the right man for the job when it comes to a movie uh, telling the story about making the atomic bomb. And yeah, I was just so excited. I knew the, the cast going into it was going to be huge. Was it a long movie? Yes. I did not feel the runtime at all, though. I was focused the entire time. I just wanted to like... I was more like in learning mode. I was like, I just wanted to learn everything about this story because I know we learned about it in history class as a kid, but I'd never read any books on it or anything like that. So it definitely filled in a lot of blanks that maybe I had forgotten or maybe that we didn't get. So it was good to like dive deep into these characters and like, and then dive deep into like the, the gray areas that you don't learn about in history. Um, and that's for, that's for sure. I mean, that was, oh man, there was so much to this story. I did not even realize that went on in the background. Only negative I have, and it's not towards the movie, it's towards myself, was I need to watch this again with subtitles, because I, mi I know I missed a whole lot of like dialogue and names and stuff like that, just because everything was kind of like loud in some, some parts. People had different accents, because there were, there were scientists from all over the world. So I definitely want to go back and rewatch this with subtitles so I can like catch things that I was not able to catch uh, this first go-around in the movie theater. Uh, but overall, enjoyed it. What an unbelievable story. Uh, yeah, it was perfect. So I had a great time. De definitely would recommend going to see this one in theaters. Yeah, as you guys know, uh, I think I've talked about it on the show a few times, maybe. But Christopher Nolan, I mean, what a like a roller coaster of a filmography for me. I know not for a lot of people. Uh, it sounds like not for you guys. But, you know, he comes out, he does the following, he does Memento, he does Insomnia, he does Batman Begins. The Prestige, Dark Knight, uh, Inception. That kind of run of movies right there, I mean, hard to go wrong. Pretty much all pitch perfect, if you ask me. Um, so Inception was 2010, so it, it's, it's been 13 years. It's in, I don't like that. <laughs> I feel like I remember seeing Inception like for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is a weird feeling. But since then, he's done Dark Knight Rises, a movie that I've talked about is one that I like significantly less and less each time I watch it. I don't like it. Um, he did Interstellar, a movie that I was talking with Keith about is one that I think I am due for a rewatch. I didn't like it the first time I saw it. I wouldn't be surprised if I liked it significantly more, but just as things stand, I don't love it in my purview right now. Then he does... Um, Dunkirk movie I don't like I think I'm again in the minority there but I, I didn't care for it very much and then Tenet I was like I really am like I kind of hate this <laughs> this is just all visuals and literally nothing else there is good in there but I just did not like that movie so I've kind of because of that I've always said you know for 13 years now 
I went from loving Nolan to not caring for anything that he's doing. Um, This one gets announced. It comes out. And I'm like, what am I going to think of this? This is interesting. You know, tackling a real life story kind of, I guess, sort of similar to Dunkirk. Although the big criticism of Dunkirk was that you didn't get close to any character in that movie. And this one is, you know, named after Oppenheimer. So it's like, okay, what are they going to do with that? And I certainly think this is his best movie since Inception. Without question, like where would it actually rank amongst his? I don't know for sure, but I can definitely at least say that while watching this movie, I finally, for the first time in over 10 years, got that old um, Nolan feeling again. Like watching one of his movies for the first time, I was there. I felt it. It felt good. I was happy, Um, even though the story itself is very dark, depressing and tragic in more ways than one. The filmmaking itself is pretty out of control, even in scenes that are just kind of characters standing or sitting and talking to each other. It's still there's like some quality that is there that is just kind of unmatched. It's a long movie. It's so long. But I, I like Keith, didn't really feel it either. I just kind of flew by. It felt like I was learning something, but I was also engaged. And that's a weird thing. And we've all like been through school. When can you say that? I was like learning something and happy about it for once. <laughs> and I maybe I just love movies, but it felt good to kind of receive the information in that way. I don't know. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. it it's a very, very well put together movie. When it comes to any negatives I have, I think it kind of ties into everything Keith said in his negatives. It's just like, It's like, why do we need to watch the movie with subtitles? I think it's because it's such a huge cast. These are all real people. And it's hard to grasp their names and what they're saying just in these quick bursts. And then, oh, surprise, towards the end, that random character or actor or actress was vitally important to what happened. And it's like, oh, I knew nothing about this person. <laughs> and it's like almost comical. There's one specific one that I will say when we get to spoilers where I was like, oh, that person's back now. Like, <laughs> OK, <laughs> like it, it, it's very strange. And I have no idea what their name is, what they do or what their thoughts are, because like there's so many characters coming in. It's just so hard to track on a first viewing. And it can be like 45 minutes to an hour before you see this character's second scene. So when they yeah. come back, it's like, oh, man. I've been through decades now in this movie. (laughs) Where was this character again? So it's not a bad thing. It's just so huge and so big that there's just so much to keep track of in this movie. Absolutely. It's a lot. And, you know, it's a lot for a reason. I mean, it's three hours. So naturally, there's going to be a lot in there. I do think there could have been some finessing in terms of how certain characters kind of come and go. I know they want Oppenheimer to be the lead of that. But when it comes to the ensemble, I think they could have done a bit better there. That's really my only kind of nitpick. Other than that, it's kind of a devastating movie. One of the, I think, best endings to a movie that I've seen in a while. And when I say ending, I mean like the final moments, what they communicate, how that makes you feel as the credits roll was like, fuck. Uh, It's just, it's not like a happy movie, but it's a great movie. And I'm glad They presented it in this way. I'm glad the story was told. I think people should watch this movie, uh, not for engagement, but also for kind of the information and knowledge that we're talking about. This movie is an important one to know the story of. 
Uh, there's lots of subjective and objective things going on here. Who are the quote unquote heroes and villains when it comes to real life? I don't know. This movie also is going to make you go, I really don't know. And it's kind of a good feeling, but also scary. So couldn't recommend it more. I'm glad Christopher Nolan's back in my good graces, so to speak, after kind of a string of movies that I didn't love. I hope that continues. But Oppenheimer, regardless of where he goes from here, this was a great movie. It almost serves as a warning, I think, of of the power and scope of these weapons. And now in our current world, as we're seeing kind of more and more global conflict escalating, um, think of the war in Ukraine and things like that. It's it, it's very scary. And the movie does not leave you feeling good. Certainly, it, it, made, it left me feeling very nervous. Um, but I think it's really powerful. And I don't think there's a way to do a movie about the atomic bomb without there being a scary ending at the end, because these weapons still exist. And they're even bigger and more devastating than when they were when, when this initial one was even developed. So I thought it was a very powerful ending. Um, and I just I can't stop thinking about this movie ever since I've seen it. Yeah, it definitely delivered that message. Um, like you said, in a devastating and kind of sad way, but the real, but the realistic way, um, and the fact that, yeah, these weapons are, it all started with this story really. Um, and you know, they thought they were doing what they needed to do at the time and maybe they were, I mean, that's what I did. That's what I did like about this movie. I don't think it got too political about, you know, you know, what's the right and wrong way to do it. They were just all just doing their jobs for what they thought was best at the time. And then, you know, uh, you definitely leave the movie without spoiling it too much you definitely leave the movie with that question it's like okay maybe that was good or bad for that time period but you know what's this going to lead to later on in the future um so i guess that was kind of what you're left with but yeah super super depressing if you kind of think about it long enough all right guys cool so with that it sounds like this is one of those uh, few reviews in a while at least where we all thoroughly recommend this movie I think we can all agree that if you're going to watch this one, absolutely go seek it out in a theater, whether it be IMAX or whatever, like, good presentation you can find. It's a beautiful and gorgeous looking movie um, and a story that needs to be told. So go check it out. Um, and yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, come on back after you do, because the rest of this episode is going to be full on spoilers, which, again, it's always, it's always funny to talk about spoilers in relation to, like, real-life stories. But if you don't want to know, as I think there was a lot of things in this story that we didn't know going in, like some details-wise, go see the movie first and come on back. And, uh, yeah, we'll be here for you waiting. And I was really surprised to see that um, the Robin story from The Dark Knight Rises is continued in Oppenheimer. So if that's what you need I to agree. see, it's here. That That was weird because, like, whenever the bomb, like, went off, you know, seeing... JGL in a Batman suit was like, okay, I didn't expect this revelation. Interesting. Interesting. Were you expecting the original revelation that his middle name is Robin? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think anybody thought that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, welcome to Spoiler Territory. Before we get into our thoughts and specific topics, let's do some cast and crew breakdown. Austin, you want to start me off? All right, so Oppenheimer is written and directed by Christopher Nolan himself. Our cinematographer for the movie was Hoyt Van Hoytema. Our score for the film was composed by Ludwig Gordson. And of course, based on the novel American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Shorin. We got a crazy cast here. We got Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, Matt Damon as Leslie Groves, 
Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss, Florence Pugh as Gene Tatlock, Josh Hartnett as Ernest Lawrence. And then, guys, we just have a crazy run here. I don't know if we're going to call out these people, but let me just name them so you fully can know and appreciate who all is in this movie. In various degrees of screen time, you have Casey Affleck, Rami Malek. Was he unfortunately bad? I don't know. We'll see. Kenneth Branagh, Benny Safdie, Jason Clark, Dylan Arnold, James D'Arcy, David Desmolchi, and Dane DeHaan, Alden Ehrenreich, Solo himself, Tony Goldwyn, Jefferson Hall, David Krumholtz, a.k.a. Bernard, Matthew Modine, Gustav Skarsgård, Matthew Angarano, Jack Quaid, Josh Peck, and calling you a trutha! Olivia Thirlby, Alex Wolf, Scott Grimes, Matthias Schweighoffer, and of course, we got to call out two special people. We have Gary Oldman, who randomly shows up as Harry S. Truman, the president, <laughs> and the great Tom Conti as Albert Einstein. Guys, who are your highlights, positive or negative? It could be one of our main people. It could be one from our really fast breakdown because this cast... It's insanely huge. So what do you guys got? Yeah, of course, the easy one would be uh, Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer. Just an incredible performance. I will not be surprised if we see a ton of Oscar nominations for him at the end of the year. I am actually going to give my standout to Jason Clark, who played the main attorney, um, kind of cross-examining Oppenheimer in this movie. Uh, not a ton of screen time, but I think the way he commanded the screen time, especially on kind of those ending scenes, so intense, so intimidating, just really stole the show for me in those scenes and the way he was breaking people down and twisting their words and really uh, kind of making my skin crawl with some of the things he was um, getting at or like hinting at just really kind of stole the show for me. So really enjoyed those kind of closing scenes with him. Yeah, he was really good. Those scenes were, oh man, those scenes were intense. I think those were the scenes I was like focusing in on the most throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I just felt myself like shrinking deeper and deeper into my chair though in the during those scenes because I was like, oh no, they're they're taking it that way. That's not the way it actually played out. Like things like that. Um, man, it's hard to pick out so many people. I guess I'll just go. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm going to be with you, Austin. I'll shout out Killian as uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. I think Nolan nailed it picking him for this role. Um. I hadn't really seen Killian in a whole lot other than my beloved Peaky Blinders show, which he is awesome in. I don't know if you guys ever watched that. Well, and of course, Sunshine, which we talked about for our random movie bracket. The whole big thing is like they met whenever Killian Murphy auditioned to play Batman and Batman Begins. He made it to the final callback between him, Christian Bale, and one other guy. He didn't get it. And then Christopher Nolan was like, you know, I, I don't see you as Batman, but you know what? I like you for Scarecrow. And that started like he's in all the Batman movies. He's in Inception. He's in Dunkirk. He's in like all of his movies pretty much. But it's like, like a fun side character. But here he was like, this is the lead. I finally know it. I wrote this character. I knew Kelly had to play it. And I'm with you. I think they they picked the right time to have him as the lead because he's pretty unbelievable in it. But anyway, um, also just shout out a bunch of side characters, too. I mean. Josh Peck, as a, as the kid who has no lines, who presses the button. That was kind of cool. presses the button. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, David Krumholtz, Bernard. Uh, yeah, a, hef a heftier David Krumholtz. I actually really did like his character as, as he would come in and out and, and chime in. Matt, Matt Damon's character, great performance there. But yeah, it's hard to... Um, shout, out, shout out to all of them, really. I don't think there was a really a bad performance in here. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> This is like one of the harder ones in a while. I don't know. I guess, I mean, you guys pick Killian Murphy and some of the side characters that, I mean, I think you got to call out Robert Downey Jr., a character 
We see a fair amount of in the movie, but still not as much as some of the others. And he's one that certainly leaves an impact. Um, one that kind of traverses both the color storyline and also the black and white storyline. And some reasons toward the end kind of reveal his true intentions, what he's trying to do. Um, and I just thoroughly enjoyed seeing him in kind of a different role. So that was super fun. Uh, great there. Also, if I was going to like Keith, shout out just a couple of our people on the side here. Honestly, he stands on his own pedestal. You could call it a solo act. And that is Alden Ehrenreich as <laughs> the guy that is just pushing RDJ's buttons the whole movie. And I loved it. I thought that was like a fun role. I like that. I uh, had a good time. So that was like a fun side character for me. Everybody else was great, too. But it's just there wasn't a ton of screen time to be shared between all 150 of them. <laughs> also worth calling out the cinematographer, uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema. This movie looks insane, especially the explosion shots, even the imaginary shots of the atmosphere catching fire. There's so many just stunning shots in this movie. So the movie looks amazing. All right, guys. So with that, let's go ahead and get a little bit deeper here. Let's get into our roundtable discussion, the main part of our show where each of us brings a point or two that we want to kind of expand on a bit more and break it all down. So where are we going to start today? Yeah, I wanted to start with the intro to the movie because the movie does not hold your hand at all. It pulls you right into this world of physicists and politics and things like that. So I just kind of wanted to check in and see, did you like this intro or did it take you a second for you guys to get your bearings with all the characters? I wasn't really familiar with Robert Downey Jr.'s character Strauss. I think that was like the one thing I just had trouble following in this movie was his character. Yeah, it was hard to follow for me, but it was still really fun to see all these scientists come together. And it was interesting to see how they picked these scientists and how some, some did not go with the Americans. Some went with the Nazis. People that went to school together went on two different sides of this war. Um, so yeah, that was really cool, cool opening and definitely on a rewatch. I want to kind of pay more attention to the names of it so I can just learn a little bit more how that was uh, structured and all that. Yeah, I think it, it took me a second to get my bearings because a little bit of what you talked about, Keith, where the movie opens with the trial starting and then you see Strauss kind of offering Oppenheimer a job. And so I thought, yeah, oh, I guess Strauss is on trial like for the development of the bomb, because that, that's where I thought we were going. And then as the movie goes on, you realize, oh no, the whole job thing happened after the bomb, and we're going to go even further back into Oppen Oppenheimer's life and build up to this point. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting opening. I think Keith talked about focus and intrigue at the beginning, and they do a great job of getting you in right away. Uh, the scene that kind of sticks out to me, because I was confused by it. I was also like, this couldn't have really happened, right? But clearly it did and I'm like people don't talk about this more but it was so good in terms of like bringing me in is I guess maybe kills not the right word but Oppenheimer as like a student poisons an apple with the intention of giving it to his professor he doesn't like and so already we know going in this is the guy that is going to be integral in creating the bomb that ends World War II and might be integral when it comes to any near future of our kind in terms of like the nuclear holocaust because we have the tools now that could make that happen they talk about that in this movie and it's like he started out as a kid that was like 
Hmm, I don't like this guy. I'm, I'm going to poison an apple and leave it for him. It's like, <laughs> what an interesting kind of way to go. And it's like, it kind of brings you in because, again, this movie doesn't treat him like a hero or villain. He doesn't necessarily do the same either. It's like, what can we really call Oppenheimer in the grand scale of history? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he someone that was just doing his job, which we also know from, like, the other side, when it comes to the Germans, we can't really say that as a good thing either. Like, I was just doing my job. So it, it's very intriguing and, and, a great, and a start that drew me in to this story. Whether or not I liked his character, I was like, wow, so this is Oppenheimer's start. <laughs> like, he's willing to do this. Very interesting. Yeah, I don't think you could say he's someone who's just doing his job because he does, he does consciously insert himself with Leslie Groves when they first meet and say... I'm kind of the only one that could run this project. So he he does kind of actively put himself forward for the job. So I think it's a little bit more than that. But I, I did like how they didn't shy from the more uh, controversial elements of Oppenheimer's character. He's definitely a womanizer. He had an interest in communism. It, it seemed like more from an intellectual thing. Um, but he had you know multiple affairs on his existing wife. Um, even when he when they met in their relationship, she was already married to another man. Um, so lots of like controversial things that they just kind of address head on in this movie. Yeah, he certainly there's not when you look at like his history, I guess you wouldn't expect him to end up where he did. I don't think he would have either. But it's just, yeah, he just kind of finds his way there because of the people that he meets along the way. I think Josh Hartnett's character is kind of integral in that. Obviously, Matt Damon, uh, some of the communist characters he meets, both uh romantically and otherwise it's like i don't know yeah the way they presented it was was quite cool but i do agree with you guys that it is hard to follow at the start and i think it's just by nature of the scope of it of the amount of characters of the amount of like dialogues and interactions between all of them it, it, it is tricky and it's like yes i am with keith like well i'll watch it go in subtitles and i'll follow it along i do kind of wish that i could have done a better job of following it along on the first watch um, so maybe them, I don't know what the movie could have done, maybe pared it down just slightly, but I wouldn't call that like a major negative or anything. Yeah. I wonder if the, the kind of dueling Senate trials is what made it a little hard to follow in the intro. Cause you are going from different time periods even. Cause I, I think the cross-examination of Oppenheimer versus the trial of Strauss is a, about a five year gap. So even, even that's a jump in time. It's a different color palette. Then you're going further back in time to before he even becomes a distinguished professor that people know about to his like kind of early years. Then you're in his career as a professor for a bit. And then finally, you're at the development of the bomb. So you are all over the place for the duration of this movie. Yeah, we're constantly jumping time periods here, which might be like the nice time to bring it up. So I, I guess, Austin, I feel like maybe you could you might know this already, Keith, you probably don't because you stay away from this stuff, which is a good thing in terms of the conversation. But either way, um, when it came to them doing black and white for the quote unquote, like present day stuff, which really was just like kind of like the Senate hearings and a lot of that, and then doing color for everything else, like, did you guys feel like that worked? Was that on purpose? Christopher Nolan has talked about why they did that. And I think it's a pretty intriguing reason. But before I say what that is, did you guys like that they kind of use different color palettes uh, for those different stories? I liked it as a way of, of cueing the audience to, okay, we're back at the quote unquote present of the movie. So it was, it was a nice way because of how much we do jump time, like we've talked about, to know once we're in black and white, this is 
kind of like the furthest into the future that this movie is going to go. So Better Call Saul kind of does the same thing. You have Saul um, post-Breaking Bad era, and those those scenes that are post-Breaking Bad era are black and white, and then you have prequel Better Calls or prequel Saul in color. So it kind of reminded me of that. I, I, I kind of liked, liked that distinction in the time periods. But what was, what was the, uh, the reason that Nolan said? Yeah, I like your point there. I think you guys are both right. I think just kind of doing like a simple present versus past kind of works by doing it that way. But Christopher Nolan has talked about it in a way that I'm, gl- I'm actually glad I saw this before I saw the movie because I think it informed my viewing experience a little bit. But he has said all of the um, scenes in color are basically Oppenheimer's point of view. It's kind of how he views the events that happened. Everything that's in black, so that that would make it subjective. Everything that's in black and white is what actually happened. That is objective. So a lot of those Senate things, that is what actually happened. And the reason why I say that it kind of informed my experience in a cool way is because there are some crossover scenes. I do think about a lot of the Louis Strauss scenes where he is sitting at a table and they're communicating. And there's one black and white scene where he is talking with Oppenheimer across the table. And Oppenheimer is a very kind of forward and out there personality in terms of his thoughts and opinions. But then in the color scene, we see the same sequence and Oppenheimer is not sitting at the table. He's kind of sitting behind them, kind of out there. He's kind of like sitting against a wall, almost like interjecting kind of. So it's almost saying like Oppenheimer, you know, he wasn't fully into that in his opinion. He's like, I didn't do that. But then in the black and white, like objective scenes, according to Nolan, it's like, actually, no, Oppenheimer was very into these conversations and and certain things like that. So there is a little bit of like objective versus subjective, which is kind of cool. So knowing that going in, I think actually helped me because I think I might have been confused otherwise seeing some of the same scenes, some in black and white, some in color where like we're seeing the same characters having the same conversations, but they're saying or standing like in different places or whatever. And Nolan has also talked about that he did take some creative liberties with the story. Yeah. Uh, like the, the biggest one, I think, would be when they're first doing the calculations and realize that there's a chance that the atmosphere could get set on fire. Um, Oppenheimer did not actually take that to Albert Einstein. He took it to a different physicist who isn't as well known. So they replaced him with Einstein to make it more of an impactful conversation for the audience. Yeah. I do want to jump back a little bit and just talk about Oppenheimer as a character because like we touched on is there's a tendency I think with some of these biopics is to make the centerpiece of the biopic the hero of their story because it's going to be more engaging for the audience but they really don't do that in this one they just kind of present him as he is with all of his flaws they they never tell you if he did the right or wrong thing it's kind of up for you to make your own conclusion so overall what were your thoughts on how they handled Oppenheimer throughout the movie yeah I, I think I said it earlier that I did, I did kind of like that they didn't really, I guess, pigeonhole you into one way of thinking or another. It's kind of just left it up to you to decide who he was as a person. And, and like one of y'all said, I mean, it's kind of like he was like that too. He didn't even really know who he was at the end of this whole ordeal. When you get that scene with Truman in, in the office and him and Truman just gets mad at him because he's, he calls him a crybaby and all that. He's like, I feel like I have blood on my hands. And Truman's like, you just invented this for us. I'm the one who used it. People could argue, well, he's wrong or right. It doesn't matter. Uh, it just goes to show that that's what this whole story to me was about, was 
that no one really knows what was right or wrong. Neither did Oppenheimer. So yeah, I think they did a good job showing that. Um, and then with all the other side stories going on, like with Robert Downey Jr.'s Strauss and the politics going on behind that, it's very subjective. So yeah, I, I like that they told it in that way and didn't p- pigeonhole you into in, in any one way of thinking or another. And that's why I, I really enjoy that the movie introduced a lot of the personal relations and stories of Oppenheimer's, whether it be him, you know, constantly cheating on his wife, whether it be the relations that he has with his brother and kind of like maybe the party ties that may be there at the time that would be very impactful in a bad way. So kind of constantly having those there, which are true from what we understand is like you're you're still thinking about those things as this character is trying to do what they think are heroic things. But like you said, Keith, it kind of um goes down an understandably dark path. You know, having Oppenheimer as a Jewish person is thinking about these bombs and this type of retaliation in connection to that, in connection to fighting Nazi Germany and the anti-Semitic people in general, which is certainly understandable. But then you know, as things go on and he kind of gets less involved towards the end and the bombs then also get dropped uh, on Japan specifically. And I think I had a, like a like an audible reaction to this scene whenever they were deciding where to drop the bombs um, and ended up, being, of course, being Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But it's like not Kyoto because my wife and I vacation there. So we can't do that. It's like, that might be the grossest thing I've like ever like heard. <laughs> He's like, it's such a beautiful city. I c- we couldn't do it. Yeah. It's like, we can't do that because I would like to go back there at some point. Yeah. And, and so then to have him go to True and like you said, Keith, and be called a crybaby and be called weak. It's like he was willing to make this thing not knowing or maybe no, I guess he can't really know for sure. Like, it's like, this was your retaliation. What was the cost of life for the rest of Germany? Obviously. There's a lot of people that need to die, but how many innocents were you okay with dropping this on and being like, we'll see what happens? Uh, and that's exactly what happened in Japan. And then he feels the blood in his hands after. And then we kind of like him again because he feels bad, but it's like he also did it. So yeah, that's kind of the whole movie. It's like, And I love that the movie held him accountable for those things because it's like, if they hadn't, I mean, so many other biopics would have just been like, well, he felt really bad until he died. And then, so he's a hero. It's like, well, I mean, <laughs> he, in in some ways, sure, but in some ways, also, I mean, you're responsible for the level that level of collateral. And then look at where that level is taken in the future when it comes to nuclear warfare. It's like, we'll see. And that's kind of the ending line of the movie. It's just like we weren't talking about Louis Strauss Einstein. You know, he thought we were. I'm talking about. I feel guilty because I think we may have set up the world to destroy itself because of what I made crazy (laughs) so it's a fascinating character to be the lead of your movie for sure and i really enjoyed kind of the military conversations when they were deciding to use the bomb and where to drop it because they bring up other targets and they say well that's not a big enough target for this type of weapon so Mm. that kind of justification and then also why are we dropping two bombs well the first one's to show we can do it the second one is to show we can keep doing it i never thought of it that way and so that kind of gave me chills when that scene came on um, I, I'm sure everyone at some point has had to do this in their academic career, but I remember in, in college getting presented with the choice of to drop the bomb or invade Japan and having to write a paper about it. And it was very interesting to see that dilemma come up in the film where they're preparing for a full military invasion of Japan 
and then the bomb gets developed in time and they're having that debate in the war rooms of do we drop it and kind of save that cost of life for Americans or do we invade and maybe risk an even greater loss of life because we'll have to fight a full scale land war. And then, but then it opens up to the whole other question. Okay, now that we have these things, and that's what they get into in this movie in a really detailed way. Now that we have these things, now we're going to, if we don't continue to make them, well, now our enemies are going to continue to make them. And then they're, they're scared about the whole Cold War, Cold War thing with Russia. And then you got Germany as well with all their scientists that didn't come to the American side. I think the Germans were really close to like getting this also on their side. Well, Oppenheimer was concerned because Germany figured out how to split the atom first because they had that scientist he was closest with. Yes. But then we figured out how to develop the bomb first. By the time we developed the bomb, Germany was already defeated, but Russia was also working their way towards the bomb. And that's what we knew at the time. Yeah, which is interesting. Like you said, Q, it's like in real life, I don't know how close either party actually was, but I love the movie kind of brought that up. It's like, well, we don't know how close they are, but we know that they are working on it. So they could be almost there. They could be further ahead than us or they could be behind. Either way, it's scary. So we need to act now. And Oppenheimer's again kind of like, oh, I don't know how to react to that. <laughs> it's like I understand wanting to beat them to it. Um, but also it's kind of scary, you know, to beat them to it based on just the massive loss of life that you're going to have either way. So crazy, like kind of the movie did, you know, maybe more than I even considered at the time while watching it, but it really did kind of bring up along the way in some subtle and some overt ways. But either way, I think they were done well, like kind of bringing up the um, kind of the cost of life that you're going to see regardless and trying to figure out when is a move like this worth doing? When is it not? And especially after you do it, should I look back on and think of if that was the way to go? I mean, the movie spends so much time on all of these issues and it's always kind of fascinating. And I still like kind of with Austin, <laughs> like going back to your initial thought, I was like, I've been thinking about this movie ever since I saw it. Uh, and I still have no answers for those questions <laughs> because none of the people in real life when they were doing it could ever possibly have an answer for that question in, their, in real time. It's like, what do you do? I don't know. But what they did was fucked up, but you also get it. And it's also like, I don't know, everything in between. <laughs> what I get scared about is when I think about the use of a hydrogen bomb, because in the movie, they yeah. bring up a lot with the atomic bomb that it was very hard to find a military target big enough for the atomic bomb. And they still have yet to find a target big enough to justify a hydrogen, a hydrogen bomb. And those are what are developed today. That, would, that is what theoretically we would be launching if we were to do another one of these. Yeah, crazy. it's crazy. What did you think of the conversation about do we guarantee to our allies that we'll stop development of this so that way they stop too? Or do we keep building up because they're going to keep building up? I mean, that's the whole thing it always is. That's the conversation still today. Like, do you keep building because everyone else is? Do you stop and hope that's, you know, everyone will stop? It's like, I can honestly say, and I'm glad the movie addressed it, but I have no idea how to answer that question. I never want to see that level of destruction and intent in our world, regardless of who it is against. But it's like, yeah, I, I understand the question. It's like, do you have them in case or should let's just all stop because this is insane. It doesn't matter who you're trying to hurt. The level of life lost in that attempt on either side is going to be so great that it's almost like, what's the point? So it's scary. So I understand the characters talking about it. You have to, but I don't know 
where I stand on any of that. It's just, it's almost too big of a question. And again, it ties to the ending of the movie that I love so much. It's like, at, by the end of the movie, Oppenheimer is talking to Einstein. He's not talking about the bombs that we made and that I've talked with you about. What are they going to be used for in the future? He's like, I don't even care about that anymore. What I did, the ideas that I had, the tools that were used from what I gave them to kind of create these things, I think those are the same things that will evolve and destroy our world. And I don't mean like figuratively. I mean, like, I think our world will be destroyed via nuclear holocaust because of me. Like, that's what he's talking about. So it's like whenever those questions are addressed, you don't know how far they're going to go. So it's like, I don't know. I, I just wish none of these things existed. But I know that's not viable or realistic at this point. I really loved the scene where the Trinity test is successful. And Oppenheimer's giving his speech, and it's a very positive speech in favor of the bomb. Then you see what kind of he's envisioning with like the skin flying off of people oh, and yeah. things like that. And so you're seeing all those people cheering, and he's saying, I, My only regret is that we already beat Germany, so we can't use it on them. And they're reacting to that. But then the reality, he's almost having an anxiety attack about the awesome power of what he's created. And going back to the filmmaking, Keith, as you know, the one moment in the movie that made me like scream out loud was the test. And I oh, loved yeah. the choice to make everything go silent when it went off. But then like minutes later, once the sound comes back, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, I got like really scared at that moment. I was like, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> the, the visuals of the test is, of course, impressive, but I almost found the audio more impressive because I was yeah. waiting because we saw other uh, smaller tests where you see the explosion and like maybe five seconds later, you'd hear the sound. So I knew the sound was coming at some point and it made me jump too, Matt. It like almost like made me jump out of my seat. Yeah. I know because I was waiting for it. I was like, when is the boom going to hit them? Like, I know it's coming. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> I didn't. But I mean, you know, you talk about the thing that you appreciated Austin was the audio, which I, I couldn't agree more. But I mean, it's a huge cast. Um, but did you guys appreciate the cameo that I think? I don't I don't think Keith saw this, but I certainly did. And it was during that test scene. Did you guys see kind of the like maybe the crazy? I mean, we got fucking Gary Oldman. We get Einstein. We get all these great actors and actresses. Did you guys like the cameo that we got during the test scene? If you didn't, if you didn't catch it, I'll, I'm happy to explain it. I don't think I caught it. Mm, I don't know. When the bomb goes off during the silence, there is like a split, like, like, you know, blink and you'll miss it. Little cameo there. It's like whenever like the cloud is going up, you see a refrigerator fly out in like, like, to, and I think our old friend Indiana Jones oh. is inside of it. Oh, he actually could. It could be real life Harrison Ford in his 80s just back in the fridge for I fun. So actually, I heard Harrison Ford did motion capture for the refrigerator in this movie. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Intriguing. Yeah. Wow. I'm a doctor. Intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is something I've, I've come to appreciate about Christopher Nolan is he's a huge Indiana Jones fans and he'll never direct one as you've said but every chance he gets in his movies regardless if it makes sense if it's a historical genre if it's a Batman movie if you look closely enough Harrison Ford is in it I agree with that I will say you know it's been uh, trending lately Keith this might excite you this is not a joke actually I promise this time but it was rumored a long time ago that Christopher Nolan would direct a James Bond movie so in terms of his future he has been asked about it again and he still wants to direct a James Bond movie so whenever they cast someone new we might see Christopher Nolan behind the camera of it 
we have a, a point in our doc to bring up what we want Nolan to do next, mm-hmm. and that is really what I am looking for from him. I, I love these historical epics that he's done now with Oppenheimer and Dunkirk. I really do want to see him get back to doing something fictional, though. Obviously, Tenet was a miss for us, but the thought of a James Bond movie in his hands with how we know he can kind of unveil mysteries and, and play with your mind and your emotions, the thought of tying that with a James Bond epic is so exciting to me. I would like to see who would be casting that, too. Well, we know he loves to work with the same actors over and over. Josh uh, Peck? Maybe Rami Malek's back for round two. Oh. <laughs> wow. That's the same Rami, character. is that you? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, very bad. Robert Downey Jr. as the villain with like a strange looking white wig, maybe, again? <laughs> and his balding white wig when he's aged up. I like it. I like it. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, I'm, I guess I'm with Austin. I mean, I really thoroughly enjoy it's not the right word i i just appreciated and and love this movie um and i'm glad i was telling you the other night i'm glad that i can say that about christopher Nolan because i've been dying to say it for the last like decade plus i wanted to feel this way about one of his movies again and i finally did and it feels great so i want that trend to continue does it does that mean it has to be non-fictional or fictional i don't know um it would be cool to see him dive into the franchise thing again but I don't want to see him do like a, like another trilogy. If he does like a James Bond thing, which he's talked about, I'd like him to do one, maybe kind of set up the new world and then bow out and not come back to it. I would like that. Uh, but I, I, I do, I do honestly miss um the inceptions of the world, the prestiges. I miss kind of uh, these original stories, even though I believe the prestige was uh, based on a book. Uh, but still, just like the the point stands, kind of those original, like kind of like crazy worlds from him. I know this is coming from somebody that hates Tenet, so he kind of like just did that last time, but it really didn't work for me. So I, I, I do miss movies where he cares both about the visuals, the characters, the heart, and their dynamics. That's what he missed in Tenet. That's what I was kind of longing for in Dunkirk, even though it was based on a real story. And I think in this real story, Oppenheimer, he nailed all of those aspects, even when they didn't make you feel good. I didn't feel good watching him and Florence Pugh have sex together and knowing that Emily Blunt was back home. I was like, no, <laughs> Oppie. <laughs> but like, there is something there. Well, what about the scene where you see it from Emily Blunt's perspective and they're in the room together? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's like this movie, he did all those things that I've talked negatively about. But in this one, he did it right. So I just want to see him bring that over into the next thing. I don't care if it's like James Bond. I don't care if it's like another fictional original story from him. Or another like kind of Dunkirk or this like non-fictional story that he's interested in. Uh, either way, I'm down for the next thing. I hope he continues this trend for me of something that I love. I know you mentioned at the beginning that you think you're due for an Interstellar rewatch. I, uh, I think you should also give give Dunkirk another shot because okay. the culmination of the different storylines and Dunkirk coming together is still like one of the hype moments for me in a movie mm-hmm. uh, that I can think of. And the idea of pairing that type of storytelling with an idea on the scale of Interstellar for a James Bond movie is what really excites me about Nolan potentially doing the Bond franchise. That's fair. I think I might rewatch... Yeah, I should just rewatch all those. All the ones I don't like. I should give another shot, I think. Uh, But definitely, particularly Interstellar and Dunkirk, because I think all the way through, I've only seen each of those once. I didn't like either of them in theater, but I should watch them both again, just to see. Yeah, I mean, I think you would definitely do a good job uh, for a, a Bond film, or maybe like two or th- do like a Dark Knight trilogy type thing with a Bond. Imagine if he brought that caliber from Batman Begins and Dark Knight. Sorry, Dark Knight Rises is not up there for me, but 
uh, from those first two at least. If you could bring that kind of caliber to a James Bond uh, adaptation, that'd be awesome. I mean, you mentioned The Dark Knight Rises there, Keith, and I know we, we talked a little bit earlier about the explosion, but did you guys know Harrison Ford also did the motion cap for the bomb dangling from the plane in The Dark Knight Rises? Really? Yeah. Mm, so okay. his mocap career is almost impressive as his acting career. I would say it's better than Andy Serkis's. Ooh. Maybe get those two together for a Lord of the Rings reboot. Wow. As Gollum and his brother Bollum? <laughs> I actually want to see Harrison Ford play Gollum's torso and Andy Serkis play Gollum's waist and below. That's fair. I think Andy Serkis has always been like best when it comes to waist below acting. I think we could probably all agree on that. So that seems fair to me. Yeah, he really should just be playing the penises of those monkeys. Yeah, I agree. I think we should get him on the next Nolan film as a cock. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, everybody, with that, before we close out here, of course, we have to do some Arnie's Podcast Awards. This is the part of our show where we take something from the thing, movie, TV show, whatever it may be that we just talked about. It could be a positive. It could be a negative. It could be something in between does not matter. It's just something that we think deserves specific praise. So, Austin and Keith, what gets your award today when it comes to Oppenheimer? Yeah, I'm going to give um, the Lather Up Award uh, to the physicist that chooses to just pour gallons and gallons of sunscreen on his face <laughs> for the bomb test. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what it was about was the consistency cool. or the texture of that suntan lotion. It was, it like almost made me want to throw up just how gross it looked on his face and the motions he was doing. I appreciate not wanting to get burned by radiation, but it's way too much sunscreen. So he definitely lathered up for this bomb test. Yeah, I feel pretty passionate about this award. I mean, we have so many great actors and actresses in this movie, like we talked about. So it's like, how am I going to pick one to single out for some praise? It's hard to do, I have to say. Um, But the one that I think deserves it has done the most traversal here and i want to award them not with an award that you would expect i think but more so i want to give them an action which i think they probably got in the past i think that josh peck deserves to get slimed once again like he did in his old nickelodeon days i think he deserves the slime award we need to pour a bucket of slime on him because we're seeing him in a movie or tv show And I know that's not high praise because based on that criteria, he could have shown up in anything. Um, But this is the first time I've seen him in a movie or TV show in probably 10 plus years. So let's just throw a bucket of slime on the old guy for old time's sake. That's all I'm saying. I think it would have been more surprising if we had seen his best friend, um, Drank Capaniano, who who did change his last name to a Spanish name. Unfortunately, uh, he's Drake on the Bell run himself. because he can't stop assaulting people, so he can't be in American films anymore. But that's what I mean. It would have been so impressive if he had found a way to appear in this if movie, despite being on the run from the police. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying, Austin and Keith, is that we should like shower praise on Josh with like a nice, like quick little bucket of slime. We should probably drown Drake Campagnana or whatever it is these days in in slime. Like he should like go in and not come out. It sounds like he really blew his chance to get a Drake and Josh reboot series on Disney Plus. I know he won't stop talking about it. I'm gonna give the you got E equals MC squared award. Oh shit! And that goes to Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, because that was a cold shoulder that Einstein gave him on that walk off. That was a really cool ending. It's a very sad ending, though, when it uh, shows the whole world burning up from the chain reaction. 
It was crazy, sad, but yeah, the cold shoulder that uh, Einstein gave Strauss was pretty, pretty significant. So he also got a pretty cold shoulder from the entire scientific community when they actively prevented him from getting that Senate confirmation. I mean, Keith, when someone, when your old buddy Oppie comes to you and is like, "Hey, man, remember that time we talked about a bomb? I think it's going to lead to the entire world's destruction." I mean, it's not on you whenever you walk away from that conversation feeling dejected and sad. I'm sorry if Robert Downey Jr. is walking by. He's getting the cold shoulder. It's it's not it's not Einstein's fault. It's not our fault. It happens. Whatever your old buddy's like, we fucked up the world. <laughs> so with that, thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we would appreciate that to continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your podcasts will just help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back next Tuesday to talk about the finale and ending of Secret Invasion, the miniseries over on Disney+. Plus. We did an episode a few weeks ago on the first and second episode, I believe, so go check that out uh, if you want to get caught up beforehand. But this has been an interesting show. I'm really curious about Austin and Keith's thoughts because I don't know if they've been keeping up with it. I've had to kind of slowly keep up with it as well. Hopefully the finale sticks to landing. I just really want one of these Marvel Disney Plus shows to be really good again. I'm hoping for that. So we'll see what happens, and we'll give you our thoughts on that next week. All right. And lastly, want to hear from you. So please send us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us thearniesmedia at gmail.com. What did you think of Oppenheimer? Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. All right, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you enjoyed Oppenheimer as much as we did. Uh, have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time. Uh, that's all we got for you. See you then. See you. Give Harrison Ford the Oscar for his mocap work. <laughs> <laughs>